So remember that you have to finish the Odyssey for a week from today, because there'll be a quiz. And so, sorry, no, they're all they're all work for um, for what? For Sukkot. Well, what <laughs> what do you want to go with? It's it's a holiday. It's a holiday. A holiday of sleeping in. Yeah. Now a lot of people went home. Or at least they claimed they did in their emails to me. Well, some people consider their dorm room to be home. I guess that's what they meant. <laughs> they they all meant, they said they went to their dorm. Okay, I'm assuming that you guys are up at least through book 12 now. You're supposed to be through book 18. You have a week to finish um, for the quiz, and the second half of the Odyssey is Odysseus at Home back in Ithaca, so the uh, second half, well, if you've read to book 18, you know that, that lots of things happen in Ithaca as well as lots of things happening before he gets to Ithaca. So basically we've gotten now back to the point where, at the end of book 12, we've gotten back to the point where the story began, and then the second half is Odysseus reuniting with various of the people he has left behind, including the infant Telemachus, who has now become the 20-year-old Telemachus. Uh, we'll look, we'll spend a lot of time today, I think, with the underworld. Um, not all of it, but a lot of time with Book 11 and the underworld. Um, probably for later literature, the single most influential book of the Odyssey, um, it's, it may or may not be the greatest, but it's certainly the book that haunted the imaginations of um, subsequent writers most from the Odyssey. Uh, you'll see it in, in Plato, you'll see it in Virgil, you'll see it in Dante, you'll see it in Milton, the journey to the underworld. The famous line in Virgil, which we'll have occasion to talk about, but um, I'll just mention it now, is a famous line in Latin is, um, facile discensus of Wernum, um, easy to descend to Avernus, to the realm of the dead. What's hard is returning. Um, that's anyone can die. What's hard is coming back to the land of the living. And that idea that Odysseus descended to the dead and returned to the land of the living, it, he's obviously not the first person to do that. There's lots of Egyptian um, mythology about going to the land of the dead, but the Odyssey is where it got widely spread through subsequent Greek and Roman, well, Greek-influenced um, culture. And what the things that Odysseus does in the land of the dead are things that um, get picked up in various ways by other people. There's, yeah, Ilana, oh, okay, there's, um, the first thing we hear about Odysseus and, and um, now that we've talked a bit about uh, epic formulae and, and the structure of oral poetry, I've done some of my duty by giving you the basic um, context. Here's some more. Um, the very first thing that we hear about Odysseus, the first line, is that he is the man of many ways, is how Lattimore translates it. Um, do people have other translations of book one? What do you have? Yeah, the man of many wiles is a frequent translation. Uh, anyone else? Does, someone is using the Pope version, is that right? No, someone was using the Pope version. Yeah. I have Fagel's. Yeah. 
The man of twists and turns. The man of twists and turns. Um, that's an epithet that um, really only appears in the first line, um, and therefore it is hotly debated. That's the only time he's called that. But the fact that he's called that in the very first line of the poem tells you um, from the start Homer is put it, laying down a marker for what kind of character Odysseus is. And he's a harder character to tell this sort of story about. What he is is a character who's generally known as the trickster. Um, what Odysseus is always doing is figuring out what to do <coughs> by doing tricks. The most famous trick probably, well, what would you, what, what, what trick um, would you call the most famous trick in the Odyssey? Yeah. The under the sheep's belly part of it? The whole Cyclops thing. Yeah, okay, and the nobody part, yes. Um, it's the um, Cyclops, this is, uh, th this is Polyphemus, and it is book um, nine, go to um, line 146 of book, book nine. Um, is it line 146? No, it's not. Um, it is um, line 366, rather. So they go to see um, uh, they go to the land of Polyphemus. And um, what um, and they see him. Go back to uh, l around line 177. If you have Lattimore's page 142. So speaking, I went aboard the ship and told my companions also to go aboard and to cast off the stern cables. And quickly they went aboard the ship and sat to the oarlocks and sitting well in order, dashed the oars in the, great, in the gray sea. But when we had arrived at the place which was nearby, there at the edge of the land we saw the cave close to the water, high <coughs> and overgrown with laurels, and in it were stabled great flocks, sheep and goats alike, and there was a fenced yard built around it with a high wall of grubbed out boulders and tall pines and oaks with lofty foliage. Inside there lodged a monster of a man who was now herding the flocks at a distance away, alone, for he did not range with others but stayed away by himself. His mind was lawless. So the thing to know about Polyphemus, one eye, and he lives alone. He's an unsocial being. Um, it's almost as though his single eye, um, Cyclops means circle eye. Um, ops as in, um, as in op, um, optician um, or optical. Um, and cycle as in cycle or circle. Um, so there he is, alone, for he did not range with others, but stayed away by himself. His mind was lawless. Um, the law that his mind does not understand is ultimately, or first off, or most fundamentally, the law of? All right. Um, and in truth, he was a monstrous wonder made to behold, not like a man, an eater of bread, but more like a wooded peak of the high mountain seen standing away from the others. Now, a man, comma, an eater of bread. That's a really crucial apposition. 
here, a really crucial. Does everyone know what an apposition is in grammar? Nope. Um, <laughs> are you sure? I mean, you don't sound sure that you don't know. Um, an apposition is if you say something like um, the the um, leader of the leader of the Republican Party in the House, comma John Boehner, comma said today that he would support Obama's socialist policies. So when you repeat a noun phrase twice, or or when you refer to the same person by two different noun phrases, or the same thing by two different noun phrases. Um, the greatest university on the Charles River, comma, Brandeis University, comma, um, may be found within Route 128. So you're repeating the same thing, the greatest university on the Charles River and Brandeis University. And by doing that, you're saying, I'm giving you some information, namely these two descriptions apply to the same thing. It's apposition is um, when instead of saying Brandeis is the greatest university on the Charles River, um, you refer to the subject of the sentence in two different ways. So the apposition here is, it's an, it's an important thing, it's an important concept to have. Everyone is used to it. The concept of apposition, the concept of putting two different noun phrases next to each other so that they refer to the same thing. See, that was an example of itself. Um, the concept of apposition, the concept of two different noun phrases referring to the same thing and thereby being linked to each other is an important one to have for the study of literature, <coughs> the study of the best and most wonderful things that human beings have ever created. Okay? Those are Not examples of apposition. Sorry? Not that you're biased. Not that I'm biased. Um, so here we have an apposition, a man, comma, an eater of bread. So what Odysseus is doing is essentially saying the definition of man that he holds is the definition includes the idea that what a man is is an eater of bread. Polyphemus does not grow grain. He is not an eater of bread. He is pre-agricultural. The crucial thing here, the history, the anthropological history or the social history that is, um, that is compressed in these words is the shift from herding to, which is what Polyphemus does, which are what nomadic peoples do, to um, agriculture, which is what people who are fixed in a single place do. So the development of cities, as some of you will know, is a direct result of the invention of agriculture. Um, and the um, once you have farms, people no longer move around. They just don't go from place to place with their flocks and their herds, but they stay put in order to raise their crops. In, they have to defend what they're raising, so they build fortifications so that they can protect the crops that they're raising from nomadic raiders. And this is um, the essential prehistory of all human cultures that have developed agriculture, um, all human cultures that do that. Bread is something that um, can only come into human experience with agriculture. You have to grow grain. You have to see it 
into its growth. You have to mill it, you make flour, you have to bake the bread. Um, when the children of Israel, since, since there's a sort of, um, and ought to be a kind of um, biblical parallel that, um, that's running through all our discussion of this, and which will um, come to fruition when we look at Dante and Milton, but when the children of Israel um, are, are going through the desert, they are going from a fixed place in Egypt to becoming wanderers again. Um, and one place that you can see this is they can't let their bread um, rise. They don't have time. Hence, the matzah that people eat on Passover, because there isn't time um, to make bread in the way that fixed people make bread. And eventually that bread gets replaced by manna because they don't even have time, uh, because they can't grow bread, they can't gather grain, they can't mill flour. So being fixed, settling down, having a home, which is what Odysseus is attempting to return to, um, that goes with bread. And bread goes with hospitality, sharing the bread that you have made with someone who is not at home. Um, home is defined by grain and by bread. The stranger is the person who needs bread. The um, person at home is the person who has bread. Yeah. So um, in the Iliad, where we have uh, Achilles offering or telling Priam to break bread with him, can we, can we assume that there, can we assume some sort of uh, some sort of well? What can we assume about Achilles and the the the, uh, the Greeks? Did they actually did they have time to plant there? No, they probably not. Um, but that they're supplied okay. um, from home. That is, they're an expeditionary source. But they actually do get supplies. Um, there are hints of this in the Iliad um, from the places um, where they come from, um, and they bring their own food. But they but they're able to do it. Um, the whole point is that Odysseus and everyone else, they're trying to return home because they have homes to return to. Um, and that's why they keep, that's why Achilles asks here, what's happening with my father? What's happening with my son? Did they get home? Um, that's why the people vaunting over him say, you are never going to see your home again. Um, but the, the idea of home is the idea of bread. Um, that's the most essential definition of what it means to be the kind of person who has a home. Not the kind of person who lives in a cave, but the kind of person who has a home. Um, Polyphemus is not an eater of bread. Um, so go now to line um, 360, um, and here Achilles is getting Polyphemus drunk. Um, and um, so um, I gave him the gleaming wine again. This is line 360. Three times I brought it to him and gave it to him. Three times he recklessly drained it. But, the, but when the wine had got into the brains of the Cyclops, then I spoke to him, and my words were full of beguilement. So here we have Odysseus the trickster, um, who always beguiles. And he says, now I got him drunk, and then um, I beguiled him. I fooled him. My words were full of beguilement. Cyclops, you ask me for my famous name. I will tell you then, but you must give me a guest gift as you have promised. And then the famous line, nobody is my name. My father and mother call me nobody, 
as do all the others who are my companions. So obviously the point here is, is um, a famous and old logical joke, um, which is that nobody is, um, can be either a name or can be the fact that something isn't named. Um, the, the famous little twist is um, nothing is better than sex, ice cream is better than nothing, therefore <laughs> ice cream is better than sex. Um, and if you think that's a fallacy, some people don't, but that's sad. Um, if you think that's a fallacy, um, what the fallacy relies on is two different uses of the word nobody. That's essentially um, the trick that Odysseus is pulling here. Um, but it's worth here, um, it's certainly worth knowing the Greek, which is what he says in Greek is utis emoi gonoma. Um, nobody is my name. Utis is the Greek word for nothing or nobody. Um, literally, no what is what utis means. Tis means what um, in Greek, like um, um, uh, qui in Latin, or qua in Latin, actually. And u means not. O-u means not. Um, if you go, just to take an example, um, almost at random, um, if you go to um, how at the beginning of Book 9, Odysseus identifies himself to Alcinous. This is at line 19. He says, I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, um, line 19 of Book 9, which is, aim Odysseus Laer Laertiades. Um, now, what you should hear, what you would hear in the Greek is when he says, nobody is my name, utis emoi gnoma, um, that's not very far from Odysseus is my name. In Greek, it's a pun, utis emoi and Odysseus in Greek are very, sound very close to each other. And of course, what Odysseus is doing is performing a trick there um, but it's a trick that is not simply a trick that anyone could have pulled. It's a trick which is based on a pun on his own name. He is punning on his own name when he says, nobody is my name. And that pun matters because here it's as though what Homer is doing is and we've already alluded to this, but I want to be explicit about it, what Homer is doing is saying Odysseus is a vastly different kind of figure to write an epic about from Achilles or Hector. Um, we talked about this before as Odysseus sees that what Odysseus wants is to get home, not to be glorious, that's not his main goal, but to return home. It's a different kind of story. Um, but it's a story which opens him up to um, the kinds of accusations that he's, <coughs> that, um, he's open up to um, in almost every other story about Odysseus. This is one of the few stories, few extant stories, where Odysseus is a hero rather than a villain. Um, even in the Iliad, 
Odysseus, remember he goes running home and um, Diomedes says, what are you doing? But Odysseus doesn't even stop. Um, he's, he's too quick to get away. The archers in the Iliad, recall, are the cowards. Odysseus, who goes sneaking around killing people, is not really... I mean, the, Homer isn't thinking much about him in the Iliad, um, but he's not really morally much superior to the archers. In um, the Aeneid, he's certainly regarded as a villain. The reason for this is that he proceeds through trickery rather than through face-to-face um, um, -face self-disclosure face-to-face revelation. So what Homer is doing in the Odyssey is um, technically, as far as craft goes, is he's attempting a really difficult thing, which is to take a certain kind of folktale hero, that is the trickster, and turn him into a completely different kind of hero, that is the epic hero. Um, the man of many ways or of twists and turns or of many wiles um, is transformed in the course of the Odyssey into the hero of the Odyssey. And it's almost as though what Homer has done is set himself, and what all great writers do is they set themselves near impossible tasks. Um, what they do is they take a kind of figure that no one else could turn into a hero, let's say, and they make that figure into a hero. In Hamlet, for example, Shakespeare has the task of making someone who is unable to do anything heroic, who just keeps putting off the idea of doing something <coughs> heroic into the greatest of tragic heroes. Hamlet is as different from any previous tragic hero as you can imagine. Um, we're used to him, so we're not quite aware of that. But what Shakespeare did was he said, what if I do a tragic hero who does nothing and who just spends a lot of time saying, why, why am I not doing anything? Um, and that's what um, Shakespeare does with Hamlet. What, yeah? I'm, I don't know. I, I always thought of him as a fairly active character. I mean, he... He's not so much doing overt things as always tricking everybody. Yeah, Hamlet is a trickster also, but a trickster who never, whose tricks never get him anywhere um, okay. and who, who gets distracted by his own trickery rather than, than following through on it. Okay. Um, even the tricks that some people think do get him somewhere, they don't. Um, and it's, it's as though Shakespeare is saying is, um, <coughs> I'm just going to write my longest play about someone who doesn't do anything. Let's see how that works. Um, and it works because he's Shakespeare. But the task he assigns <laughs> himself is a near impossible task. Yeah? I don't understand now why Odysseus would be such like, an unlikable character. I find him, like, I mean, even if he's not you know, using his magic you know, physical strength, I think using his mind for survival is admirable. But maybe that's just a modern. No, no, it's because, it's because this poem works. In other words, what it, you're, of course he's admirable in this poem, and of course this poem, he's the hero and he's wonderful. And um, the story of Odysseus and its happy ending, um, bloody but happy ending, um, is a wonderful story. Um, 
But in the other stories of Odysseus, he does not come out as wonderful. What, this is a thing that we'll see when we get to Dante. Um, because Dante, as I mentioned before, puts Odysseus way down um, in hell as um, a treacherous person. And Odysseus is um, uh, not treated by Dante's architecture and by Dante's god. Odysseus is treated very badly. And Virgil, just, you know, part of this is just, just um, preparing you for your reading of Dante. Virgil, who guides Dante into the underworld in real life, was against Odysseus. So here's Virgil, the poet, guiding Dante, the poet, into the depths of hell where they meet Homer, the poet's, one of Homer, the poet's two main characters. And we know that Virgil is against him. And we know not only is Virgil against him, but God is against him, because that's where God has put him. Um, and Dante is far more ambivalent about him. Um, but that ambivalence is an ambivalence that goes against almost all traditions about Odysseus. The Odyssey is the great exception, and it's an exception to the rule and it's the exception that matters. Um, the exception is so overwhelmingly more present in our imagination and in our cultural history than the rule to which it is an exception that, of course, we like Odysseus in the Odyssey. But the point is that Homer has, the way we like Hamlet in Hamlet, but the point is that Homer has taken us, you don't, the way some of us like Hamlet in Hamlet. Homer has taken, that's another story. Um, Homer has taken um, a story which it is almost impossible to tell, um, given the prejudices not only of the audience against Odysseus, but given the idea that tricksters are not the heroes of epics. Tricksters are not characters who are emotionally moving. Um, and that's really the crucial craft thing to see that Homer is dealing with is that tricksters are, in some sense, because they're always acting, they are nobody. That's the deep idea in what Odysseus is saying, that as a character, he really is utis. He is not defined by a single thing that he does or a single way that he has of being. He is always thinking about what to do and how to present himself and how to interact with others. For him, it's always a matter of choice rather than a disclosure of who or what he really is. In general, what tragedy and what epic are are disclosures of character. The famous line, um, which is, which is um, Napoleon's line, character is fate. Um, is a line about the history of all literature. A character, what a character is, um, is what they're fated to be and what um, they will be disclosed as being in the story that, um, that, that focuses on and isolates their character. Achilles' character is to be angry if he is dishonored because his desire is for glory rather than for life. And that is that fact about his character is what determines his fate. Yeah. Um, in the underworld, though, in this book, uh, Homer 
Yes. Yeah, and that's exactly what that's exactly right. That's exactly you could say the place in the Odyssey where Homer is having Odysseus meet the characters who died because of what their characters were. And Odysseus is different. He goes down, he comes back. And that's absolutely crucial what you're saying. Yeah. Wait, but even in the Iliad, Odysseus or not Odysseus, pardon me. Um, Achilles seems to really not want to die, and he, he's staying out of combat partially because he's angry, but partially because he knows that if he goes there, if he goes there, he'll die. He really doesn't want to die, and even uh, and even when he decides to go to combat, he's he doesn't seem to be looking forward to, to it so much as and looking forward to getting glory so much as being really really pissed at Hector. Yeah, but the point is that nothing. Odysseus basically only makes one mistake um, in the Odyssey where he speaks thoughtlessly, um, speaks without, um, speaks, speaks spontaneously. Um, what is it? You were nodding. So. Yeah, when he taunts the Cyclops um, after he leaves. Um, and that's a huge mistake. Um, because he doesn't realize the Cyclops still has power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, question about that. I, I was a little confused with that scene. He seems to, he washes up on the shore twice, to, and then. Yeah, because it's probably a description of an earthquake and a tsunami. Um, that is, um, remember that a whole lot of these stories, and this is much more obvious in Ovid, but they're they're all stories of that, is that um, violent things happen, and you can tell a story which animates nature to explain why it happened. So outside of the harbor of Ithaca, there's a large rock that looks like a ship. Um, where did that come from? Yeah, the Phaeacians, their ship has turned into a rock. Um, so all of these stories are just so stories of origin. Um, so what happens is um, he thinks he's, he's away, and for once he speaks spontaneously, and um, Cyclops starts throwing rocks, and they cause gigantic backwash and waves. Um, and so it was a mistake the one time that he's completely spontaneous in the first half is a mistake. But, um, sorry, but what, why doesn't the Cyclops... Because he's blind. He would if he could. Um, you know, it's, it's actually a pretty exciting scene because both, both sides are, um, have weaknesses. Um, the, in the last six books, you will see that there's another place where Odysseus um, responds spontaneously to something. And that's a really great moment, his spontaneous response. Um, but... The second spontaneous response, that's the one, in a way, um, that the whole poem is leading to. Let me just say that that's a, that's a formulation um, that I'll probably use a lot. And it's, again, the mark of extremely good narrative craft. Um, here I'm not saying it's the mark of great literature. It sometimes isn't the mark of great literature. But it's the mark of extremely skillful and sophisticated narrative craft that every significant moment in an unfolding narrative looks like the climax that everything up to that point is focusing on. Um, if you do a narrative right, and very few narratives are done right, um, and it doesn't mean that they're great if they're done right, but if you do a narrative right, every moment will look like the climax of everything that's happened up to this point. 
Um, and one way that you can see that see how skillful the Odyssey is, is the way it makes all its narrative events kind of culminations of what have gone on to that point. However, one major culmination is the second time that Odysseus is spontaneous, um, which you'll see in the last six books. That's what I'll say about it now. Um, and um, Telemachus is a far more spontaneous character than Odysseus. Um, Penelope is a far more spontaneous character than Odysseus. One of the ways that Homer, I, I guess, look, I really, really want to insist on how difficult it is to make a trickster a hero. The reason being that you don't really get a handle on the trickster. Um, you may delight in the tricks. Um, trickster heroes are generally, you know, con men. Um, the, if you know the movie The Grifters, um, if you know um, uh, The Usual Suspects, um, uh, the, the, the um, Kevin Spacey character in The Usual Suspects, who I won't tell you who he actually is, um, if you haven't seen it. Um, there's something delightful about stories about tricksters. There's no question that there's something delightful about them. Um, but they're almost never deep stories. You almost, the, the whole idea of a trickster is a trickster is a kind of um, spread out all over the surface of the world. The trickster can change directions at any moment, is always aware of what's going to happen next, is always gaming the system, is always in the moment, thinking about the possibilities of the moment, and is never sitting in his tents brooding and mourning and angry and stewing. Um, the way Achilles is. Odysseus is as opposite a character as you can imagine from Achilles. Um, almost as opposite a character as you can imagine from Hector. Um, he's a character we can take delight in, but not really a character that we can think of ordinarily as deep. The, the solution to the problem, again, Hamlet is instructive here, the solution to the problem for Shakespeare of making a trickster a hero is to have the tricks not matter, to have the tricks be something that Hamlet does to keep people from understanding him so that he will then soliloquize, which is where he isn't being tricky. And we can see the depth. We have privileged access to his depth of character, but no one else except to some extent Horatio does. For everyone else, he's a trickster and they don't understand him. For us, yeah, he's deep. Odysseus, we don't get those kinds of moments except rarely. Um, another spontaneous reaction that he has, it's not a thing that he does, but it's a reaction that he has that gives him away and warms us to him, is when he weeps about the story of the death of the Greeks and the fall of Troy. Um, another spontaneous reaction is some of his reactions, especially to his mother in hell. Emily. Yeah, but notice that those decisions are always, should I do A or should I do B? If I do B, I'm committed to it. If I do A and it doesn't work, I can always do B. That is, that, that, that whenever he looks into his mind and this is the course that seems best to him, it's always that what seems best to him is something that doesn't shut off the other possibility. And that's always his principle of judging, which is if I do this thing, 
um, then I won't, then if it doesn't work, I'm sunk, literally. Um, whereas if I do the other thing first and um, that doesn't work, then I can go to plan B. So it's always an ordering of plans so that plan B isn't precluded if he does plan A. Um, so yeah, he does look into his mind, but he looks into his mind for um, what, the what the percentages are. When Achilles looks into his mind, when Hector looks into his mind, they look into what choice of life to make, um, glory or long life, um, uh, tragedy with, uh, with honor um, or obscurity. Um, Odysseus never does that. And the con again, the contrast in hell is, is one that's very instructive and that we'll see. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering about that moment in, um, I think it's book 11. Mm-hmm. <coughs> where Odysseus just stops the narrative. Um, find it. Okay. Um, pretty much what happens, so he, he just he says, well, but that's been enough for tonight. And maybe Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Um, yeah, at line 378, 379, a great Alcanua is preeminent among all people. There's a time for many words and a time for sleeping, but if you insist on hearing me still, I would not begrudge you the tale of these happenings and yet more pitiful. So, the, so, the, so partly... Well, what are you curious about it? What makes um, you curious about I it? I guess uh, whether, you, whether you, I mean, whether you find that to be spontaneous or, or if you think that was planned on his part. Oh, look, I'm not saying that, that Odysseus is, is never spontaneous. He's got to be. No, no, I, I'm, uh, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to play, you know. No, no, no. I'm not trying to do anything here. I'm just, I'm just like, um, I'm just thinking, you know, because it's obviously, it's significant uh, in one sense, and also the kind of creative way on Homer's part of, you know, changing up the narrative. Yeah. But I was wondering, you know, um, if we can find any insight as to whether that's Odysseus, I don't, I don't know, maybe trying to draw people further into his narrative, or if he's just actually like, all right, I've had enough for tonight. Because he stops in a very kind of unusual place. Huh. Okay. I think, I think what you're saying is really interesting. I've never thought about that. Um, I would I would say probably the more general thing that I would say about it is the friendship between him and Alcanuus is a real one. And um, again, having said that Odysseus is um, a trickster and that that's the problem to which Homer then seeks to find a solution, and the Odyssey is the solution to that problem, um, part of the solution is to have genuine social interaction. That is to have Odysseus, when he comes to trust someone, um, then he tells his story. And um, the idea that Odysseus, who is always suspicious, should be in a position to trust people and rely on them um, and um, say who he is. I am Odysseus. That's a major thing for him to do. Um, and then he tells the story of how someone said, who are you? And he lied. Um, and he said, I am Utis, not Odysseus. Um, later, he will lie, as those of you who've read through Book 18 know. Who does he lie to when he gets back to Ithaca? The swineherd. To Eumaeus, the swineherd. 
Um, so Odysseus's first impulse is to deny everything. And the place where he kind of resolves for us into a human being is when he trusts someone. So the crucial thing, I mean, this is really what I wanted to, to get to, is that what makes a character into someone worthy of the epic, where how do we define an epic? Well, that's a hotly debated, or not even hotly, a warmly, a coolly, a, lo a, a topic that has been long cooling on the oven of critical, of literary history. Um, but one possible thing you could say about an epic is that it has to have characters worthy of the story that it tells. And the story that it tells has to be a story which it really is about life and death matters. Um, so that an epic doesn't have to be tragic, um, and the Odyssey isn't tragic. But an epic certainly has to be potentially tragic. Um, and the Odyssey has, has a lot of tragic elements within it. Um, tragedy is um, technically a kind of play and it's a play which um, usually ends sadly, but certainly is about um, punishment and coming face to face with um, the deepest horrors of life. Um, tragedies don't have to end sadly, um, technically, in, in Greek tragedy, and some don't. Um, but they are about coming face to face with the most elemental and difficult aspects of life. Epic has to have some of that. Um, it, it doesn't have to end that way, but it certainly has to have it. Um, you were going to say something. Um, no, he was saying how like Odysseus abruptly stops the um, yeah. narrative, and he does it a couple of times before book, I think it's 12, or and yeah. when he goes back to his story, I don't remember which story it was, but he had already previously told it, and he just like abruptly stops it, and, and it's like, oh, it would be a shame for me to already tell something yeah. over again. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, the thing to remember is that sometimes what happens when Odysseus is telling a story is, I mean, it would be interesting, and um, I haven't thought about this deeply, but, you know, paper topic, um, it would be interesting to look at the difference between Homer giving you Odysseus or Menelaus telling a story versus Homer telling the story himself. Um, that is, there's obviously, it's all in dactylic hexameter, and um, both Odysseus and Homer will use the same Homeric epithets. Odysseus talks about swift-footed Achilles. Homer talks about swift-footed Achilles. All of those things are determined, as we know, by the structure of the verse, especially when being composed orally. Um, but it's also a talent of, um, of any narrative writer to discriminate and individuate the voices of characters. Um, you have to be able to do that. That may be a har the hardest thing to do in poetry, um, discriminating voices of characters, because poetic diction itself has a kind of uniformity to it, especially in heroic poem, um, which, is what, which is ultimately another definition of epic is that it's a heroic poem. Um, that, um, however, there is some discrimination um, the most obvious one is first-person versus third-person narrative. That is, Odysseus is giving you a first-person narrative. Homer is giving you a third-person narrative. Um, but there are other possible discriminations. Um, and one of them might 
have to do with the kind of figurative language they use, um, Odysseus versus Homer. This is something I was thinking about this time through. But what that also means is that um, Homer is both comparing and contrasting himself as a storyteller to other storytellers in the Odyssey, to Menelaus, to Demodocus, who is clearly Homer's hero, um, in a way that Thamorous both is and isn't. You remember Thamorous, who we talked about the first day of class in the Iliad, Thamorous, the um, poet who went against the muses, um, to Phaon, who is the who is the singer in Penelope's house, and to the other various singers. And Homer is both comparing and contrasting. And maybe, again, a very, very simple thing you can say about why um, Odysseus interrupts himself is that Homer is saying, I can tell the story through, but Odysseus can't. Um, that is one thing the singers have over their characters, is that we can hold the whole story and tell it nonstop through to the very end. Um, on the other hand, um, you can also say, yeah, it's a break by the fire or a break in the hall where Homer is reciting this. And, and remember, the, the breaks in the Odyssey, the breaks in the Iliad, the 24 books of these poems, are not Homer's breaks. They are the breaks of the scribes who wrote this down, and he said this is a long book, we have to divide it up. There are some natural narrative breaks that occur um, at intervals that are reasonable amounts to read at a sitting or for a class. Um, so we'll just um, break it into 24 books because there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, um, and that's convenient. But those breaks are not Homer's breaks. And you can say that a Homeric break is wherever a Homeric break seems to occur. And natural ones are where Odysseus breaks off, for example. Breaking the Odyssey right in half at the end of book 12 is obviously an extremely natural break um, because the first half is Odysseus wandering. The second half is Odysseus back in Ithaca. Um, and so Homer clearly was thinking of the book as falling into two halves, no question about that. What he, as he thinks of the Iliad as falling into two halves. What he's not thinking of is the book falling into 24 parts. Um, if he's thinking in terms of parts at all, um, there's an argument that the Iliad um, falls into eight parts. Um, and rather than into 24. You can make a reasonable argument for that. The Odyssey, it's not going to fall into eight parts that clearly either, um, but maybe a little bit. Um, eight is a more natural way of dividing the Odyssey up than 24. Um, so uh, the same, by the way, with Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare didn't think in terms of five acts. Uh, we read Shakespeare's plays um, as being in five acts, but um, that's not how Shakespeare wrote them. He wrote them scene by scene. Yeah. Yeah, re reading them in in the five act structure, the how how they're divided by acts always seemed kind of arbitrary. Yeah, to me. yeah, and some plays, different editions will do the act divisions different ways. Yeah, yeah. How reliable is Odysseus as the narrator? Because like it, it seems odd to me, the first major scene is the people who are so different from the Phaeacian. Yeah, like whole office. Nice, like, nice. Yeah. Yeah, the inhospitable ones. I think the answer, that's a really good question. And I think an answer is given to you when you see um, Odysseus 
telling the full story to Eumaeus. That is, um, Homer wants, Homer in a way wants to um, uh, give you criteria for distinguishing Odysseus telling the truth from Odysseus lying. Um, and, but that again is a way of saying why it's hard to tell a story about a trickster. And um, just, just to give a quick answer to that, the trickster has to, at some point, reveal himself as having a more important goal than survival. In the Iliad, everyone's goal, no one has, no, no character we care about has survival as their ultimate goal, <coughs> except Odysseus, who's the only one who runs away from battle for no reason. That is, it's conspicuous that when he runs away, he doesn't say, I'm wounded, or I'm exhausted, or I'm getting more armor, or I'm trying to rally the troops. He just says, whoa, we're losing, dude, um, and, and um, runs away, because survival matters. Um, no one else in the Iliad, no great character in the Iliad, has survival as their ultimate goal. Um, Odysseus seems to. In the Odyssey, then, there is a skill question, and there's also a narrative plot question. Um, this is true in the Iliad also. So let me just say something, something very fundamental about narrative that Homer demonstrates in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it's true about narrative um, in the Bible as well, and in all the ancient texts, and in all good narratives, which is that in any good narrative where character matters, all right, let me, I'll take a step back since we're dealing with these issues. There are two major components of all stories, or two possible components of all stories, that, that are always possibilities. There's the component of plot, and there's the component of character. And some stories um, will emphasize one, and some stories will emphasize the other. There are very few stories that balance plot and character really well. Again, this doesn't mean that they're great if they do. It means that, in general, there's a bias in any story towards either plot or character. Um, that's just the way things go. What really good stories do is they are stories about how character changes under the pressure of plot and also how the change of character affects, in a kind of feedback loop, the unfolding of plot. So plot and character, in really good stories, plot and character will affect each other. Plots won't simply be determined by characters, and characters won't simply be determined by plots. Um, in mystery stories, for example, you have a detective, you have a villain, you have a dastardly crime. Um, you know, just take an Agatha Christie mystery, which I think is, is um, always an ex extremely good um, control for how plot or how storytelling works. Um, Hercule Poirot is Hercule Poirot from beginning to end. Um, the villain is a worthy villain because the villain is dastardly and clever, but in the end, not quite as clever as the detective. Hastings is um, always impressed by Hercule Poirot from beginning to end. You can rely on the characters being the same at the end as they are at the beginning. 
Um, and the only thing that you really care about in an Agatha Christie novel is the cleverness of the plotting, not um, the way characters change. We love the characters. I mean, um, anyone who doesn't love Hercule Poirot probably doesn't like Hamlet. Um, we love the characters. Mm -hmm. Do you not like Hercule Poirot either? <laughs> All right. We love the characters in Agatha Christie. Um, but it's not that they change in the course of time. It's not that Hercule Poirot, after he discovers that it was really whoever, I don't want to give anything away, it would be terrible. You know about the mousetrap in Wikipedia? Um, so someone, <laughs> this, is, this is a Tempest in a teapot to allude to another Shakespeare play. Um, but someone um, in the Wikipedia entry on the mousetrap uh, gave the spoiler for whodunit. Um, and this was now all over the newspapers. Wikipedia, you know, The Mousetrap is um, a play that's still running in London. It's been running for like 70 years since Agatha Christie wrote it, um, almost as long as As the World Turns ran until it was finally canceled this year. Um, and uh, then someone in Wikipedia um, just, just gave the spoiler. Um, and so everyone made a big deal out of this. Obviously, that's, Wikipedia does this all the time, and you can... If you don't like it, just go back and delete it. The article. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but the point is, um, whatever happens in the mousetrap, it's not going to be the case that Hercule Poirot said, oh, my God, my life has been a lie when I, when I discovered that humans are capable of this. Poirot knows from the start what humans are capable of. He never learns anything new um, except the cleverness of the plot. Um, so, so Agatha Christie mysteries are all about plot, delightful characters, mm -hmm. but stable characters. The great writer whose characters are always stable, utterly reliable and stable is Dickens. Um, so here he is, maybe the greatest English novelist. His characters don't change in the course of those novels. Um, I mean, they might change a very little bit, but they don't really change in the course of the novels. Um, he's still a completely great writer. Um, then there are writers... Um, where the characters, uh, where the plot is almost non-existent, just there in order to show how characters change through, um, through time, through thinking about their situation, th through becoming usually disillusioned, not always, but usually disillusioned. Um, Fitzgerald might be an example of that. Um, that is, or, or Hemingway. That is the that the plots in Hemingway and Fitzgerald um, are sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So not much happens, but the characters change um, just through thinking about and and sustaining the pressure of their situation. The pressure of their situation um, compresses them, um, cooks them, changes them, turns coal to diamonds or crumbles the diamonds. Yeah. It, it seems to me that in a lot of 20th century literature, the focus seems to have moved away from plot onto character. Yeah, which is a pity. Um, if you don't have plot, you're bored. Um, I mean, I think that the great writers like Fitzgerald and Hemingway are um, amazingly able to sustain your interest without a lot of plot, but it's a fact. You're right. Yeah, what were you going to say? Um, this is like backtracking a little bit, but um, I really... I think the reason why this works and the reason why Odysseus um, is able to be a hero is really because of Telemachus and Penelope, because we keep going back to them and we're so invested exactly. in here a lot from them. It's not just like, oh, he's, he has a wife and kid at home. He has Penelope. Yeah. And, 
yeah. Lemicus and um, just the we're so like we're really rooting for them. And so every time Odysseus pulls some trick, it's not like oh he's pulling some trick. He's trying to get home to. Yeah, I mean, he starts out as Don Draper, right? Um, and there is a sense in which um, what they're trying to do in Mad Men is what Homer is doing. Um, yeah, nice. And it really is Penelope um, and Telemachus who are going to, um, well, to put it the way I was putting it, who are going to mean for him something more important than survival. So the trick is always a trick to survive. But Penelope and Telemachus are going to start meaning, and more and more mean something else. Let's just for a second get back to the Iliad, um, which is also about a change in character, which is to say that Achilles um, loses it. And he, again, this is, this is a feature of anger, which is when you get angry, you believe that your anger will immediately show why you're right and everyone else is wrong and will immediately change the situation. So the oldest story in the world is the story of someone who gets angry thinking that that will have the effect that they want and it fails to have that effect. Um, you blow up, you do something, you think that'll show them, now things will go my way and they don't. Everyone's had that experience. You walk out on someone, and then you wait by the phone, and they don't call. And you check your email every three minutes, and they're not emailing. And the whole point was they weren't even supposed to let you leave the room, much less let it be three days later, and they still haven't gotten in touch with you. Shame on them. Shame on them. You'll show them, no way you're, you're going to check your email in the next two minutes. No way. Um, and if they come in, what they're going to see is that your computer is off and that you're cheerfully reading the Iliad. Um, <laughs> of course, your computer is cracked. Well, so, irony? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, it seems to me that the Odyssey is a character-driven epitome, not a plot-driven. I mean, you said about 20th century, but, you know, here it is Odysseus, 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 P.S. Odysseus. Uh, so uh, we are invested in him and not so much in what happens, like the Cyclops and everything. It could be anything. It could be substituted for everything yeah. else. Okay, so... so Let's get back to that in one second. I think you're absolutely right. Um, but back to the Iliad to show the possible other case or the extreme other case. So Achilles gets angry, and what he thinks his anger is going to mean is that they're going to see immediately what a mistake this was. Um, that is, his plan is the Trojans immediately start creaming the Greeks, the Greeks, the, the Achaeans. The Achaeans say, oh, my God, we were completely wrong. Um, five minutes without um, Achilles is, is, is um, just, just too much to bear. We're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Um, but it doesn't happen right away. Agamemnon and um, the two Ajaxes and Diomedes, they actually do pretty well. And even though Zeus has decided that the Trojans are going to slam the Achaeans, the Achaeans actually fight with very great gallantry and skill and courage. And um, Achilles is getting more and more pissed off, but he's getting pissed off in the way that people get pissed off over the fact that their anger isn't making the difference that it should be making. You get angry at the fact that people aren't taking your anger seriously enough. That's the psychology of anger. You're angry, and people are ignoring you. So you get angrier, and they still don't get it. So you get angrier, and they still don't get it. 
So finally, they seem to get it, but it's too little too late. And now you'll show them, too little too late, sorry, I'm really angry. You have no idea. And they say, well, that's too bad. Um, and they still don't get it. So all of that is Achilles being in an original mode of anger. <coughs> but then Patroclus dies. And then Achilles realizes that his anger has had an effect contrary to what he wanted and that it really is his fault. So there his character, that's where his character starts deepening and developing. I did this. And then he dreams of Patroclus. And Patroclus says to him, you did this. And the thing about dreams is it's always right when you are looking at not a dream, but it's someone describing a dream. It is always right to see the dream. Well, as for the dreamer, dreams are always for their dreamers in literature as in, um, well, in literature, as in movies. Dreams are always for the dreamers. Um, that's what they're doing. There's a reason the dreamers dream. And um, it's because the dreams will tell the dreamers something that they should have known but didn't. That is, you only in really weak literature do you have someone having a dream. In fact, this is thematized in the, in the Iliad. Do you have someone having a dream where um, some spirit comes to them and says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to try 38 right, 26 left, 4 right. That might work. Um, and then the dreamer says, boy, I don't know why I was repressing that. Um, <laughs> the point is it's new information. That's the dream that, um, that Zeus sends um, when he sends dreams. But when Achilles dreams, the dream is a rebuke. Patroclus says, look what you've done. You've forgotten me. Look what you've caused to happen. It's all your fault. And that dream is a dream for Achilles. The very fact that Patroclus says, you've forgotten me, tells you that that dream is um, the kind of dream that Freud would analyze. That is something that Achilles should know but doesn't, something that's in his mind but that he's turned away from. That's what Patroclus is saying. And there you get a deepening of his character. And then he says, however, Hector, that's where my anger goes now, even to his body. And then Priam comes and says, please give me his body back. And Achilles does. And that change in his character is what makes him the central character of the Iliad. No one else's character changes in the Iliad. People realize they're wrong. Agamemnon says, dude, I screwed up. I really did. But no one else's character changes. Achilles's character changes. And, that's, and, it's, and it's a tragic change. It's, I took a stand, and I was wrong. Same story in King Lear. Cordelia, I banish you. I was wrong. That is a change where someone is absolutely committed to the, to the expressivity of a course of action, takes action because it expresses their sense of rightness in deciding to take that action. That's how certain tragedies and certain stories start. And at the end, they realize they were wrong. And that's a deepening of their character. That's what happens to Achilles' anger. Now to the Odyssey.
In the Odyssey, you have someone who it seems Homer has picked a character who it seems could not um, be a tragic figure because he's always out for number one or if you or for number zero, no man. Um, he's always out for himself. Um, but then Homer has um, those parts of his character that he himself, in a sense, has to um, push away in order to be a trickster, becoming more and more prominent to him. So one of them is the choice of the mortal figure Penelope over the immortal Calypso. Um, that's a place where Odysseus's character, where he says, Calypso says, I'll make you immortal, and Odysseus says, no, I want to go back to Penelope. That's a place where his character um, starts coming out as a real person and not just a trickster. Um, another place, or other places, of course, are the places where he weeps um, when he hears what the singers have to say. If you're Homer... What possible other reaction could someone display that would impress you most about their depth? Performers always love audiences who care. Um, and that's what Homer represents Odysseus as, an audience who cares. So that's a major moment in the development of his character. Um, Elpinor, I just want to say this, now let's get to book 11. Um, Elpinor, who um, dies um, at Circe's house, the question of, of um, what happens to Elpinor um, and what, what needs to happen to him before they get home, that's going to be picked up by Virgil. Um, one reason, I want us to look at a couple of episodes in book 11. Um, but one um, reason to look at it is that it was so important to stuff that will happen in Virgil. And one um, aspect of that, we'll see this when we get to um, the Aeneid, but one aspect of it is that what Virgil does to Homer is um, essentially what all later literature does to earlier literature which is it finds moments in an earlier work and it focuses on those moments and retelling those stories in a way that the earlier work might not have focused on them. Um, to take an example, um, and I think this is a crucial example, um, it is a crucial example. If you go to um, um, the entrance of Ajax, of Ias, this is page 182, um, book 11, line 541. Um, and Odysseus describes how, Now the rest of the souls of the perished dead stood near me, grieving, and each one spoke to me and told of his sorrows. And then, here's Ias, only the soul of Telamonian Ias stood off at a distance from me, angry still over that decision I won against him, when beside the ships we disputed our cases for the arms of Achilleus. So um, we know that Ias is dead. 
He's died, we know from, from Menelaus's story. He's died because he boasts that he has um, saved himself through his own strength rather than through the gods. Um, he boasts that he's stronger than the gods, so the gods kill him in a landslide. Um, now he's dead, and even in the underworld he's angry, rather like Achilles, but more so. Um, Achilles has already spoken, and we'll get back to that, but now we return to this figure from the Iliad whose anger persists from that poem in which everyone was angry, but in which Achilles eventually put aside his anger. He's angry. What's he angry at? What? Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, so in a scene that we haven't seen, because it occurs between the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, Achilles is killed. Um, everyone knows how? Uh, how? Paris, Paris. By Paris. Um, shoots him with an arrow because he's an arrow shooter. It's almost as bad as being someone who doesn't eat bread. Um, and kills Achilles, as Achilles knows, and Achilles knows he's going to die soon after killing Hector, and he does die. Um, and so that armor that we've seen described at such extraordinary and gorgeous length in the Iliad, the armor that Hephaestus makes for him, is now like um, the funeral games for Patroclus, their funeral games for Achilles. And as with the funeral games for Patroclus, the funeral games for Achilles consist of giving away what had belonged to him and what no one can adequately inherit, but nevertheless what everyone wants to inherit, and the two contestants are Odysseus and Aeus, and who wins? Odysseus, apparently. Yeah, and whose decision is that? Who decided that Odysseus won? Read the next lines. Sorry? Athena and captive Trojans. Um, is that what it says there? Read it. Pallas and captive Trojan served as judges. Okay. Um, that's interesting. And that's Fagel's? Yeah. Yeah, so he's explaining something. Yeah. Isn't it Fagel's? Um, it's, uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's his queenly mother set them as prize. So it's Thetis who sets them as prize. What do you have, uh, which uh, the, uh, one? Yeah, so read what he says. Um, Keep reading. Um, would I had never won that prize, for Ajax died at his own hands because of that. Earth closed above a flawless man, one who surpassed in feats and features all the Greeks except for Pale. So he just skips that line because it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he does. So what Fagels is doing is he's explaining something that he realizes should need explanation, but it's not in the Greek. And what Mandelbaum does is he decides it needs explanation. The Greek doesn't explain it, so he'll leave it out. Um, <laughs> All translations are faulty. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's I will notice it because I have the Lattimore. Um, but there are things that Lattimore gets wrong or probably is misleading also where Fagels um, or Mandelbaum or others are right. Um, but here, it's not the captive Trojans. That's Fagel's explanation. Um, it's the sons of the Trojans, presumably ca captive. Why else would they be judging? Um, but not absolutely necessarily captive. 
Trojans. That is, it might have been a truce. Um, Fagels may know something about the source that I don't. That is the source that Homer is using. Um, and I should try to find out. But um, even if you, whether, whether there is a source that Homer is using or not, um, it's still his audience is going to hear um, what Lattimore actually gets right. His queenly mother set them as prize, so that Thetis, after Achilles dies, sets as prize Achilles' armor. And the sons of the Trojans with Pallas Athena judged. Now, it's yeah, if you think about it, sons of the Trojans must mean something like those who belong to the Trojans but were now separated from them in some way. Um, and therefore, captives is a, is a reasonable interpretation of that phrase, sons of the Trojans. Um, but there is a sense here that there's a truce for the games. And not only is there a truce, but the death of Achilles is so extraordinary that it's not only um, the goddesses and the Greeks who judge, but the Trojans do also. That is, they stop for this judgment. Yeah, Emily. Um, might it just be like the survivors? There are no survivors no. after Troy falls. So just like anybody they took with them? Yeah, the, the sequence of events is that um, Hector dies, then Achilles dies, then they build the horse um, and go into the city and burn it, burn it to ashes. And Aeneas escapes, although that's not an issue for Homer. Um, it is an issue for Virgil. It's the issue for Virgil. Um, but the point is, as soon as Achilles dies, that's when they would have Achilles' funeral. Um, so that this is occurring between the death of Achilles and the Trojan horse. Um, and it's only alluded to in this line, but I think it's extraordinary that it's the sons of the Trojans or judges as to who's going to get Achilles' armor. Um, not the sons of the Achaeans, but the sons of the Trojans. So, um, they judge, and then Odysseus goes on, and I wish I had never won in a contest like this. So high a head has gone under the ground for the sake of that armor. Aeus, who for beauty and for achievement surpassed all the Danaeans next to the stately son of Peleus. So Aeus, who was second to Achilles. Um, now, he says, so high a head has gone under the ground for the sake of that armor. That's also a little bit confusing because that's not what Menelaus has said. Um, but the general understanding of that is that A.S. losing the battle was driven, losing the contest went mad with rage. And that rage persists, and it's that rage that caused him to um, boast against the gods in the story that Menelaus tells. So Odysseus um, is, is um, maybe consistent with Menelaus. He hasn't heard Menelaus' story, but what he's saying may be consistent. It's also possible that he's wrong. That is, that he doesn't know what happened to, to Aeus, and Aeus doesn't tell him. And he assumes that because his anger is still going on, it must be because of that. Um, so I spoke to him in words of conciliation. Aeus, son of stately Telamon, could you then never, even in death, forget your anger against me because of that cursed armor? The gods made it to pain the Achaeans, so great a bulwark were you who were lost to them. We Achaeans grieved for your death as in... Actually, no, that is inconsistent, isn't it? Okay, I'll have to figure that out. We Achaeans grieved for your death as incessantly as for Achilleus, the son of Peleus, at his death, and there is no other to blame but Zeus. He in his terrible hate for the army of Danaean spearmen, visited this destruction upon you. Come nearer, my lord, so you can hear what I say and listen to my story. 
So there's his, yeah. Um, I think the one Menelaus is talking about. Is that, is that the other, the other one? The son of Oe. Oh, oh, is yeah. it? Okay. And the little glossary on the back, it references drowned by Poseidon. Okay, that's, I was as confused as anyone. Thank you. That's, that's what I was about to check, but thank you for checking it for me. Yeah. Um, and that um, Oolian AS is the one who loses um, uh, Patrick. He's the one who slips in the, um, in the ox dung and loses um, the race. Um, in um, the Iliad at, um, for, for Patroclus's belongings in those funeral games. Okay, yeah, I thought I was confused and then I thought I'd resolved it, but thank you. Now, now I won't um, make that mistake till the next time I teach this course. Um, okay, so come nearer, my lord, so you can hear what I say and listen to my story. Suppress your anger and lordly spirit. Notice that Odysseus wants to tell his story. So I spoke, he gave no answer, but went off after the other souls of the parish dead men into the darkness. That's basically where Virgil wants this story to end. That is, this Ajax's silence. Um, Homer doesn't see that as the climactic moment. He has Odysseus say, there, despite his anger, he might have spoken or I might have spoken to him, but the heart in my inward breast wanted still to see the souls of the other parish dead men. Um, he thinks, eh, it wasn't that big a deal. Um, I, could have, I could have talked to him and he would have spoken to me eventually. Um, Virgil is going to tell a parallel story in, um, when Aeneas descends to the underworld in um, the Aeneid, and he will end it with the extraordinary silence of the character whom Aeneas, not Ajax, but the character whom Aeneas speaks to in the Aeneid, and a lot of people prefer Homer, and a lot of people prefer Virgil in their telling of the parallel story. Um, go back um, to, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about book 11 a week from today, but we'll, then we'll really get to the end of the book. But go back, just as a final thing to look at for today, to book 11, line 204. Um, this is Odysseus talking to his mother, whom you recall has died for grief and anxiety about him. Um, and um, what she says at line 201 is, it was my longing for you, your cleverness and your gentle ways that took the sweet spirit of life from me. Um, so that what she's saying here is, yeah, what you are is something that I really wanted. It was my longing for you that took this, and your clever ways. You are a man of many wiles, but I loved you for it. That's giving us a cue. And then Odysseus says, so she spoke, but I, pondering it in my heart, yet wished to take the soul of my dead mother in my arms. So notice that he does that Odysseus thing. What should I do now? She's speaking, and I would look into my heart, and he says, no, I wanted to embrace her. So that's one. That's a spontaneous moment. Yeah. Um, when she says dying of grief, are we supposed to take that as like she committed? Suicide? No, just yeah. that she pined away and died. This, I saw a movie version of the Odyssey where she does a Virginia Woolf and walks into the ocean. So <laughs> it's, like, a it's hard to show people pine, dying of grief unless they actually take action yeah, in movies. Um, so 
Um, I wish to take the soul of my dead mother in my arms. Three times I started toward her, and my heart was urgent to hold her, and three times she fluttered out of my hands like a shadow or a dream, and the sorrow sharpened at the heart within me. And so I spoke to her and addressed her in winged words, saying, Mother, why will you not wait for me when I'm trying to hold you, so that even in Hades, with our arms embracing, we can both take the satisfaction of dismal mourning? Or are you nothing but an image that proud Persephone sent my way to make me grieve all the more for sorrow? And she says, no, I'm not an image, but it is only what happens when they die to all mortals. The sinews no longer hold. I mean, I am an image. I'm not Persephone. The sinews no longer hold the flesh and the bones together. And once the spirit has left the white bones, all the rest of the body is made subject to the fire's strong fury, but the soul flitters out like a dream and flies away. Therefore, you must strive back toward the light again with all speed. But remember these things for you, for your wife, so you may tell her hereafter. So what she is saying to him is the dead are only images. We have no bodies. We have nothing to hold. Three times he tries to embrace her. She says, go back to the land of the living and remember this and tell your wife and embrace her is what she means while she's alive. This is an echo, and it's an echo that Virgil is going to pick up. This three attempts at an embrace of a phantom is an echo of what Achilles does to the image of Patroclus when he appears to him in the Iliad. Three times Achilles tries to embrace Patroclus, and three times he embraces a phantom. Virgil will pick this up. Milton will pick this up. Um, it's an extraordinary scene, and again, one of the canonical <coughs> scenes that gets repeated over and over. Okay, finish it, be ready for the quiz, and I will see you in a week. Oh, Tuesday is Thursday. Right, Tuesday is a Thursday.